Well, happy Memorial Day weekend. It's a very important weekend for us to remember. If you've ever read anything about American history or have read anything about the wars that we have fought, your heart is gripped by the loss so that we might have the freedoms that we enjoy today. Much sacrifice, much loss, families torn apart by the deaths of our men and women on the battlefield. And, and it is only appropriate that we, we gather not to celebrate them in a gospel message, but to remember them. Because that's why we can be here. And it's not like Nigeria where if you're sitting in a worship service, any, at any given moment someone could come in and open fire. In fact, uh, it was 1867 in Columbus, Mississippi, about 30 minutes from Tuscaloosa where I went to school. Um, on this particular day, uh, some women went and decorated the tombstones of their loved ones who had died in the Civil War. There were also some Union soldiers who had been buried there, and they decorated those burial sites as well. And people recognized the noble act there, and it just caught on. And it, it became widespread, and, and that eventually became what we know now as Memorial Day. Uh, just reminds you of the importance of example. And I think that is a good setup today for our text because Paul's going to give us two examples of what the normal Christian life looks like. Well, let's pray and we'll get into our passage. Father of mercy, again, thank you for what this weekend represents. It represents the great sacrifice of so many that our country, and that your people may enjoy liberties and freedoms physically, politically, that could not have been enjoyed otherwise. We know from Genesis 1 on, you use human agency. And yet we realize, Lord, as important as those sacrifices are, and they are crucial, that they're a pale reflection of this ultimate once-for-all sacrifice of your Son, who was sacrificed for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to you, the living God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, that we might have liberty and freedom for all eternity. Lord, I pray that as we muse on this text today, that your spirit would Provoke us to glory in this Christ. Reorient us to this Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this past Thursday was the 280th anniversary of the great missionary and evangelist John Wesley's conversion to Christ. What's interesting is that three years before his conversion... He committed himself to be a missionary to the Indians in North America. Now, he's from England, but he had a burden for the Indians in North America. So even before he was converted, he wanted to be a missionary. But all was not well. Inwardly, he was dissatisfied. He was pursuing holiness. I don't know what his motives were. He was pursuing this inward uh, holiness without any fruit. 
But it was because he wasn't saved. He wasn't born again. But on May the 24th, 1738, about two years before the first great awakening, spiritual awakening in our country, and I believe it's the greatest spiritual awakening our country has ever seen, two years before that, he was converted to Christ. He was born again. And it happened in this small group setting in London when someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans. And we can read about his conversion from his own journal. Here's what Wesley says in his own words. He says, about a quarter before nine, while this person was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an insurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And his world, his life was completely transformed by that conversion uh, to the point that the great Charles Hodge, who would become one of the great theologians of our, of our time, he was the Princetonian scholar, he was president of Princeton Seminary, he called John Wesley a world controller. What did he mean by world controller? What he meant was this, that Wesley's faith and character was such that not only did it impact his generation, it impacted all future generations. In fact, Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say later of Wesley that his influence, Spurgeon's influence, was like a candle compared to the sun of John Wesley. And I never forget, I'll never forget the, the impact that Wesley's famous covenant prayer had on me the first time I read it, which really clarifies why he was a world controller. Here's what he says. This is his covenant that he made. I am no longer my own, but yours. He's praying to God. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Isn't that beautiful? And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. Because of our very real tendency towards self-absorption, to turn on ourselves, turn in on ourselves. Because of our very real tendency to be dull towards ultimate things and eternal things. We need to have ever before us these perpetual visions of greatness. Men like John Wesley. Now, imitating others is not the ground of our salvation. The ground of our salvation is Christ alone. Christ who fulfilled all the terms of God's law. And then went to the cross for those who did not keep the terms of God's law. Taking the judgment that was ours. That was our due. And then being raised from the grave that we might have forgiveness of sins. Those who would trust in him. That's the ground of our salvation. But once we are justified in Christ, we are now 
called to work out our salvation. And a very critical aspect of that is to having before us great men and women who are visions for us of what the Christian life should look like. And before John Wesley, there were men like Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, it may seem surprising to come to a text whose main concern at surface level appears to be travel plans. But remember, we saw last week that the the Word of God is the Word of life. And these examples that are given to us in the midst of these travel plans has the spirit-wrought goal of enlarging our hearts by giving us a vision of what the Christian life really should look like. Uh, The goal is to awaken us from our spiritual slumber. Remember, he's going after division in the church. Paul is going after grumbling in the church. Division and grumbling is generally a result of self-absorption and focusing on secondary and tertiary matters. So he's giving us a vision of something big and glorious to make these other things look very small. And he has called us, as chapter 1, verse 27 says, he says to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the call to Christ's church. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, so whether I come or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing in one spirit with one mind. Striving side by side for the sake, for the faith of the gospel. And of course, the greatest example of that is Christ himself. He says, let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man. And as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death, the death of the cross. That mindset will never lead to grumbling and division in a church. That's what Paul is saying. And then he gives himself as an example. He says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith. But it would be easy at this point to say, but Paul, wait a second. I'm not wired that way. First of all, I'm not an apostle like you. Secondly... I'm not the Christ. And Paul says, I know what you're thinking. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you two examples. Men who are not apostles. Men who are not the Christ. Two men like you. Normal men. And I'm going to show you this is the normal Christian life. And the first example he gives is Timothy. His son in the faith. A son in Christ and an example of the 127 life. The 127 life being Philippians 127. Look with me in verse 19. Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus, and I'll come back to that phrase in a moment. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. So again, 
We cannot move past what he's going after. He's concerned about division. Now, if there's division in Philippi and it's recorded in Scripture, that tells us this is a, a prevalent and common sin among God's people. And as we've seen, the reason division is so damaging is that not only does it stunt our own Christian growth, it tarnishes, it, 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 it kind of serves as, as an eclipse to what Christ has achieved by his cross, the ministry of reconciliation. And so when people are divided in a church, what they're saying, remember this, what they're saying is the cross is not sufficient for me. The resurrection of Christ is not sufficient for me. There are bigger problems that the cross and the resurrection cannot overcome. That is bearing false witness against the gospel. That's why he is spending so much time on this issue. And so here he's, he's calling Timothy to go to these people. Now, Timothy functioned kind of like a troubleshooter. For instance, he sent him to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians to, to build them up in their faith. There were obvious issues in Corinth, division being one of them. He sent him to Thessaloniki or Thessalonica to address some issues with those people. And his plan here is to send Timothy to the believers in Philippi as soon as he figures out how his trial is going to go. Paul does not know how that's going to end. And one reason Paul is sending Timothy is that when Timothy returns to him, Paul himself will know how things are going in Philippi. You see, his heart was bound up with the people of God. That's a vulnerable place to be. Because when your heart is bound up with imperfect people, and we're all imperfect, you are placing yourself in a very vulnerable place. You will be hurt at some point. In our culture, even our church culture, isn't dispositioned that way. Our tendency is towards more of a kind of a, a Buddhist withdrawal, a Buddhist retreat from the existential problems of other people. So we just kind of retreat out of self-protection. But the reality is, it's in those issues. It's in the, the concerns of other people where God's glory is. That's where our purpose is. I read this quote several years back, and I've kept it in my notes. R. Kent Hughes said many years ago in one of his books, If we cultivate small hearts, our lives may be smooth selling, but we'll never know the power and the exhilaration of being borne along by the Spirit in accomplishing great and eternal things for God. See what he's saying there? If you cultivate small hearts by not getting into the lives of other people, life will be smoother for you. But you're going to miss out on where God is. And Paul's heart is in Philippi. And he is sending Timothy to get a report for him. But the other reason Paul is sending Timothy is that Timothy is an example. Timothy is... 
models the kind of life that Paul is calling the Philippians to. The 127 life. Philippians 127. Notice in verses 20 and 21, he says, For I have no one like him. Now that's not to say that Paul didn't have other godly men. Epaphras, Tychicus, you had Luke and Aristarchus, Mark, Barnabas. All of these men... Paul knew, and they were like this. But he's speaking about at the present moment, where he is in this Roman jail. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That is an indicting statement. Paul has just warned in chapter 2, if you want to look in verse 4, let each of you look not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. And he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The reason division exists in a church which eclipses the accomplishment of Christ in his ministry of reconciliation is that we look to our own interest rather than to the interest of others. That's selfishness. He is appealing there to... Turf war warriors who are more concerned about their, their power, their authority, their rights in a church rather than laying down their rights for the redemptive good of others who may not deserve it. That's the cross life. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. The DNA of sin is selfishness. And selfishness when a person is selfish, it makes us feel like our needs, our wants, our desires, our preferences are sovereign. I know that from personal experience. That's what selfishness does. When I am acting selfish in the flesh, my wants, my needs, my desires, my preferences are king. They're sovereign. They rule. That's what causes problems in a church. But the mind of Christ. And remember, Paul is saying, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. The mind of Christ transforms that wicked, selfish orientation. And it transforms a person who is by nature selfish into a selfless person. And Paul is sending Timothy because Timothy's been transformed. Paul is sending Timothy because he's a selfless person. He's going to model this for these Philippians. And he's modeling it for the Fishervillians in the 21st century as well. Notice with me in verse 22. He says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. It's beautiful language. In the gospel. The gospel is the motivating factor. How do you know when a person's motivated by the gospel? They don't get caught up in secondary and tertiary matters that divide God's people. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord. There it is. We saw it in verse 19. I hope in the Lord... Verse 24, I trust in the Lord 
that, I short, I, that shortly I myself will come also. Paul recognizes that his circumstances are by divine design. He can hope, he can plan, but the Lord is the one who is ultimately sovereign. Now, when you can rest in that, that brings great contentment to the soul. Because in a fallen world, in a broken world, we're rarely going to be in circumstances long that are exactly the way we want them. We're rarely going to be in relationships long with people who are exactly the way we want them. We're always going to be in difficult circumstances. I told my children, we were having family devotion Friday night, and one of our children had been hurt by a family member, an extended family member. And I said, as long as there are lost people in our family, there will be dysfunction in our family. There will always be dysfunction in a family when there are lost people. Now, if you have a family that's filled with all Christians, there's still going to be sin. There's going to be bumping into one another. But the difference is there's repentance. All right? Well, Paul is dealing with a real issue here in, in Philippi. And he recognizes that Timothy is the bomb they need. A selfless man, a man of repentance. Now, think about Timothy's background. Timothy... His father was a Greek, and his mother was a Jew. So he was kind of a half-blood, if you will. Paul's background, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the supreme Jewish man, a pedigree that was second to none. We'll see that in Philippians 3, from the tribe of Benjamin. Pharisees do not interact with Greeks. But the gospel had transformed him. And now he can call a Greek, a half-Greek, a son. That's what the gospel can do. So here's what the gospel can do. It can take two people who have nothing in common with each other. Their backgrounds are completely different. Their interests are completely different. And the gospel can transform that relationship. It may be that the only thing I have in common with you is Jesus. And he's enough. So that Paul can even say, he's my son in the faith. And as a son, notice, he literally slaved with Paul. It says he served with Paul. That tames the language. He slaved with Paul in the gospel. Let me give you an example of that. Paul is about to send him to Philippi. You go, wow, it sounds like a short distance. Just going to send him down the street? No. Philippi is 800 miles from Rome. Now, we did the calculations as a family last night. If he travels 10 miles a day, he, he doesn't have a car, right? No, and no plane. If he travels 10 miles a day, that's 80 days one way. All right? He may travel more than that, may get 60 days one way. And as soon as he gets there and he, he gets his report, Paul's expecting him to come back. That's 1,600 miles. Not glamorous, not prestigious, but it was the cost that Paul was willing, or Timothy was willing to pay for the sake of the kingdom. 
And it raises a question. What is the cost factor for you right now? For the sake of the gospel. It's a very important question we need to ask ourselves every day. When the Spirit of Christ enlarges our hearts to embrace the people of God, not just my preferred you know, group within the people of God, to embrace the people of God, we become less, self, or less self-oriented and more selfless. But it's often costly. But it's the Philippians 1 verse 27 way. And Timothy models that. Now, Paul's going to bring us to the second example, Epaphroditus. Timothy was a son in Christ. Epaphroditus was a brother in Christ. And also an example of the Philippians 1, verse 27 way. Look with me in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. So Timothy's going to have to wait a while until the court case, you know comes to a conclusion. But he's going to send Epaphroditus immediately. He says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Now, Epaphroditus' name gives away his pagan past. Now, this is not to be mistaken with Epaphras that we read about in Colossians. So Epaphras is the short name for Epaphroditus. These are two different men. But that name comes from the name Aphrodite. Are you familiar with Aphrodite? The goddess of love and pleasure and procreation. His parents obviously named him after this goddess. Which speaks to where their hopes were. And it reveals something... Of his pagan past. But by the grace of God. By the mercy of Christ. Epaphroditus had been born again into a new family. And he had a new identity. And that's a word for every single person here. Who comes from a broken dysfunctional background. That does not have to define you. It did not define Epaphroditus. And now in his new identity, in his new family, Epaphroditus has been sent as a minister to Paul's need. Now we see in chapter 4 that they have sent Epaphroditus with a check. The church at Philippi was very benevolent. And this reminds us, you can be benevolent and giving and caring and yet be divisive. They had all of these positive character traits. They were true believers. But this area did not impact this area. And so they had sent Epaphroditus with a check. Now, why did Paul need a check? For this reason. The Roman prison system did not provide food or clothing or medical care. And so they bring this check through this mailman, Epaphroditus. And when he goes there, he he stays there to care for this prisoner. Probably was not the most popular time to be hanging out with Paul. Speaks to his selflessness even there. 
But now Paul is sending him back. And as with Timothy, Paul wants to send him to the Philippians to show them in live and living color what the Philippians 1 verse 27 life looks like. We need examples. We need models. And we're not left in the dark with how the Apostle Paul thought of Epaphroditus. He commends Epaphroditus with five titles. And I want you to think about this. This is perhaps the most loaded verse in the entire Bible with regard to one person commending another person. And that one person who's doing the commending is an apostle. Remarkable description here of this man Epaphroditus. The first thing we see here, he's my brother. Obviously, Epaphroditus was a pagan in his past. And now this former Pharisee is calling him my brother. That's what the gospel does. Brothers, by virtue of the fact that by, they were mutually united to the elder brother, Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, we never get past Christ. All that we are, all that we have is found in him. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. Hebrews chapter 2. And he is the heir of all things. And when we are united to Christ by faith, we become joint heirs with Christ. And we become brothers. We become sisters. Here's the question I would ask to you. If, could, could everyone in this room who is a Christian look at your life and by virtue of your love, your humility, your mercy, your grace... Your compassion and commitments. Could they say of you, that's my brother? Could they say of you, that's my sister? The second description here is fellow worker. Every brother in Christ, every sister in Christ has family responsibilities. Your own children have family responsibilities. In their home, in your home. No family member has the luxury of being served without being a servant. Correct? Now, every one of you have children that would love it that way. But you being a good parent do not allow it to be that way. He was a fellow worker. He was also a Notice, a fellow soldier. And there's a logical progression here. First of all, he was a believer, brother in Christ. Secondly, he was a servant, a worker. But guess what happens when you are born again into the family of God and you begin to serve Christ? Spiritual warfare. And so the third description here is that of a soldier. Paphroditus is doing battle, not with Paul, but alongside Paul. He doesn't do battle with Paul because Paul's not his foe. They have a common foe. And it's not each other. Again, I think this language Paul is using to remind the Philippians of their nonsense in their division. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers, against the authorities and powers and spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. 
until we recognize that we're not each other's foes, we will never see each other as fellow soldiers. The fourth description here is he's a messenger. What that means is he was a great commission man. When you have been impacted by the Great Commission, you become a conduit of the Great Commission. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not a Great Commission person. And then fifthly, he was a minister to Paul's needs. This is one of those instances where the English does not capture the nuance. The word there, minister, is where we get the word liturgy. Literally, he was a priest in religious service for Paul's needs. In fact, he's going to use the same root for a word in verse 30. So these kind of serve as brackets, verse 25 and 30. And here's an encouraging word for all of us. The only reason we know about Epaphroditus is from Philippians. He was not an apostle. He never wrote a book as far as we know. He never preached uh, together for the gospel. He wasn't on the conference circuit. He didn't have a well-known blog or podcast. He was simply a Philippians 127 man. And God's glory is in that. Realize that to serve in unnoticed places, God's glory is in that. As much as any platform. When you go home today and you love your spouse and your children in the Lord. And you love your lost neighbor in the Lord. That's every bit the work of Christ is anything I could do up here in a pulpit. But the fuel required for that kind of life where you're under the radar, no one notices but God. That kind of fuel requires a gospel-shaped love. Like Epaphroditus's. Notice with me in verse 26. It's remarkable here. I want this kind of love for you. He has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul said earlier, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But for someone else to die... That's sorrow upon sorrow. It is right to grieve when your loved ones die. Don't be so hyper-spiritual that you don't grieve. Paul said if Epaphroditus had died, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. The same man who penned to live as Christ and to die as gain. But what's remarkable here in verse 27, Epaphroditus was not distressed because he was sick. It says he was distressed because he heard they were distressed that he was sick. 
That's love. And so here's the elephant in the room I want to address. Why didn't Paul, when he was sick, just heal him? There are people you can turn on TV and they claim that. Paul was an apostle, which means he had the miraculous gifts and signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. So if anyone could have just laid hands and blown on Epaphroditus, it was Paul. Well, the answer to that is not even the apostles themselves could perform miracles whenever they felt so disposed. They had to submit their desires and wills to the plan and purposes of God. And in the case of Epaphroditus, he was healed. But there's no evidence that Paul even played a role in his healing. God just healed him. Other times in the New Testament, you have people, godly people, who get sick, like Dorcas in Acts chapter 9, and she died. It wasn't because she didn't have enough faith to claim victory over her sickness. It's because it's appointed unto man once to die. So she got sick and she died. And then there are other places where God's people who got sick and they were healed through a long healing process. Trophimus. Paul left Trophimus, this is 2 Timothy 4, He left Trophimus in Miletus because he was sick. It wasn't because Paul didn't have health or faith to heal him. It wasn't because Trophimus didn't have faith to overcome his sickness. Just in the providential plan of God, Trophimus had to heal through natural process. And even Paul had a bodily ailment. Chapter 4 of Galatians, he says that he had this bodily ailment. It was through that that God providentially directed him to this church in Asia Minor where he was able to preach the gospel to them. Now, is the truth from Isaiah 53, 5 true? By his wounds we are healed. Yes, it is. It's the word of God. But when you think about that promise, you have to think about it just like you think about the promise of resurrection. Have we been resurrected spiritually, but not physically? The spiritual resurrection we experience in Christ, regeneration, is a precursor of the future bodily resurrection we will experience when he returns. And just like our resurrection is already, but not yet, our healing is already, but not yet. In Christ, we have spiritual healing. You're transformed in Christ. But we await the day of holistic healing. But having said that, sometimes God heals. Sometimes God miraculously heals. It's by his own discretion. And we can pray that for our sick loved ones. But we can't presume it. In this case, he healed Epaphroditus. 
And hence, in verse 28, he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, I, so receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. Risking his life, that word risking can literally gambling. He gambled his life. To complete what was lacking in your service to me. Again, that word service can mean priestly service. It's, it's a word that has the same root as the word in verse 25. Now, under the old covenant, worship was relegated to the cultic services in the tabernacle. And under the old covenant, the temple. But under the new covenant, worship is not confined just to public worship services. Why? Because as we'll see next week, in chapter 3, we worship by the Spirit of Christ today. Everyone has the Spirit who believes in Christ. And now, worship entails all of life. So when you go home today, we're going to a baseball tournament in Indiana. And I'm going not first and foremost as a fan of my son's baseball. I'm going as a worshiper. And when you go to lunch today, you're not going just to eat. You're going first and foremost as a worshiper. And when you get home tonight or you go to work on Tuesday after Memorial Day, isn't it nice to have a day off? You're going as a worshiper. And when you turn on that grill tomorrow on Memorial Day, you're turning it on as a worshiper. All of life... Is now worship because we have the Spirit of Christ. And Epaphroditus' worship almost cost him his life. We don't know how. Some people say he had uh, malaria or even the bubonic plague. We're speculating there. But had he stayed home in his comfort zone, it's likely he wouldn't have gotten sick. We know that because it says he nearly died for the work of Christ. It was his commitment to Christ, his commitment to the church, it was commitment to the kingdom of God, and his commitment to Paul, his brother, that almost cost him his life. And Paul calls that worship. He calls that worship. Again, that word for service is priestly service. This isn't to depreciate corporate worship. Corporate worship is vital. It's a vital means of grace. But once corporate worship is over, we worship now at the street level. By telling them to honor Epaphroditus, that's what he's saying there, he's implying that sometimes worship requires us to risk, if not our lives, our comfort. Paul's giving them as an example to us. Indeed, risking is literally gambling. And Paul says, this is a life worthy of the gospel. I want to close with a tribute to Epaphroditus. It's short, and we end here. It's written by someone anonymous. I read it in a man named Ray Stedman's writings. And he doesn't know who said it. So I don't know who said it. But it was written by someone who was obviously having their quiet time in this passage. 
And here's what they say about Epaphroditus. What a tonic it is to run up against a man who has said goodbye to himself. I met this kind of daredevil soul in my meditations this morning. And we had a first class time together. That's when the word of God's alive to you. When you, when you say something like that, right? The one thing that struck me about him was that his eyes were in good seeing condition. He could see the need. The next thing that struck me was that he made up his mind that the need must be met. And if there was no one in sight who would tackle it, he himself would go at it. His great pleasure in life was to sacrifice. Although I never once heard him use the word. He was nearly dead on one occasion. What did he care? He had been taught from the time he was born again. That the only way to save his life was by losing it. He had also had some contact with an old hardened fighter. Who urged him not to count his life dear unto himself. And told him that he was not to think of going into good times for himself. When the world was having a very bad time. In the hands of sin and the devil. The name of my friend is Epaphroditus. And he lives in Philippians. Isn't that well said? And Timothy and Epaphroditus collectively offer us an example of the Philippians 1, 27 life in HD television. That would be a challenge to us all as we go into this Memorial Day weekend. Let's pray that prayer for us. Philippians 1, 27, as we close. Father of mercy, I pray for every brother, every sister, every minister, soldier, messenger. Lord, I pray for every servant in this room who names the name of Christ, that we individually and collectively as the body of Christ would live in a life manner in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Give us grace to do that. Lord, that we would walk side by side in one spirit with one mind striving shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel Father any division that is present may godly sorrow bring repentance we pray the ministry of reconciliation would be alive and well here at Fisherville and we ask this for Christ's sake and Lord if there's any here who've never trusted Christ I would love to talk to them Lord May they be compelled to come forward during our time of invitation. Or maybe they be compelled to come see me after the service. Father, we pray that you would save those who do not yet know you. In your son, Jesus Christ. 
And we pray these things in his name. Amen.